Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Welcome to church this morning and happy Mother's Day. If you've gathered yourself up after that video. Um, I want to talk this morning uh, about love. The title of the sermon is True Love. And uh, I want to do a few things. I want to uh, make a special recognition of moms today. Uh, the moms that God gave us, the moms that uh, we wish we had that point to a greater love, the moms we have in each other, and the moms we will have for all of eternity in God's love. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a shorter sermon, about 15 to 20 minutes, uh, because of the baptisms and a few other things going on. But I tr- I'm going to try to capture love a mom's love and baptism all in just a few minutes. And I've already actually done it in this picture behind me. If you look, do you see love? Do you see a mom's love? Do you see baptism? (laughs) There you go. Let's pray. (laughs) All right, two points today. The true self and true love. Okay, start with the true self. Verse 9 begins with this command, let love be without hypocrisy. This word in the Greek, it means without hypocrisy, ahypocritical is what it literally says. And it just means without disguise, so that what you see is what you're getting. Another great English word might be integrity, and integrity just means to be the same. And so if you took a cross-section of your life, would it be the same on the front end, in the middle where nobody else can see, and on the back end where only you see, right? So if you have integrity, if your love is without hypocrisy, if there is an absence of disguise to it, it just means that it's the same. And Paul here, he says, uh, he goes on to now unpack, he uses the rest of the verses to unpack what this means, this ahypocritical love. So we'll zero in on this. Uh, And he goes on to say that hypocritical love is not good. It's something that he says is evil. And evil often mimics the good as hypocritical love. And so there is a dark side to hypocrisy. And some of you have experienced hypocrisy in a personal way, and you felt the anger and the sense of betrayal and frustration. That's all very legitimate, because there is an incredibly dark side to love that is hypocritical. On the other hand, Paul says, when love is without hypocrisy, when it has integrity and it's genuine, without disguise, he says a few things about it. He says, first of all, that it's marked by things like honor. That uh, by its nature, it's honoring to other people. That it's uh, marked by devotion. It's marked by a kind of diligence and a fervency. And then he wraps up this whole set of descriptions about this ahypocritical love by saying that the reason true love is marked by these traits is because at its heart, it's not really serving people. And it's not serving the self, but it's really serving the Lord. You notice he says, as unto, as serving the Lord. And it's because, we're going to get to this in the second point, but really, love that is ahypocritical 
is a response to God's deep, deep love for us. And it's for those eyes that see all that we live. And so we're not hiding. We can't be hypocritical or wear a disguise in our loving because it's God. He already knows everything. He sees everything. There's no point in faking it. There's no point in trying to uh, manipulate a person because God can't be manipulated. He is not deceived. And so Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, I want to apply this truth uh, to one particular uh, application point here. Uh, I was having... uh, a very long and intense conversation with a pastor friend of mine uh, for three straight days. He visited uh, from out of town. He came just to spend time together. And uh, we talked about ministry. We talked a lot about preaching and the nature of the church. And this is the topic that we spent the most time on. The question is this. What is the single best way to be able to connect to all different sorts of people, no matter what their religion or faith place in life is, no matter what their age is, no matter what their skin color or culture or socioeconomic status, no matter what their gender is, no matter what stage in life they're in, what is the single best way to connect to other human beings? And the answer is, when you are able to be a hypocritical when you are able to be without disguise when you can be your true vulnerable self it cuts across barriers like no other tool or technique on the planet I, if I'm willing to be vulnerable, if I'm willing to take off my mask and be my true vulnerable self, I'm able to step into any situation and add energy. It's not because I'm so trained as a minister. It's not because I have so much experience. It's because I'm willing to be a vessel and serve the Lord and simply ask questions. Who am I? How can I connect to this moment? How can I give to these people I'm able to see because I'm not distracted because I'm, I'm not looking at myself? What does a hypocritical love look like? Well, it changes all the time depending on the situation. Let me take it another step further. How can we be this way as a church? What does it mean to be a church where love is without hypocrisy? That's to ask the question, what does it mean to be our true selves as a church? I've done recent surveys and I've asked non-Christians this, and the question uh, and the answer remains the same. What is the single thing that's keeping you from setting foot in a church? What is the one argument you have about the church or about Christians? And what's the answer? They're hypocrites. They're not real. They're not genuine. They say one thing, but they're living another way. Their faith, their words, their system of belief, it's all a mask. It's a crutch. It's their denial behavior. It's their escape mechanism. They're not really in touch with reality. They're not confronting truths about themselves and about the world. And Paul says, let love 
be without hypocrisy. When Paul is taking 12 chapters of dense theology and he's beginning to exposit it and make it plain for the everyday practical Christian, the first thing he says is, let love be without hypocrisy. How important, how paramount is this truth? Another thing we talked about, my friend and I, is... uh, What kind of sermon illustrations are we supposed to use? Now, I grew up in a tradition where everybody talked about missionaries. You know, that was sort of the height of faith, is if you're willing to leave behind your Western wealth and then go to a developing or third world country and try to uh, bring Christ to those areas, that was seen as an amazing thing. And it was just the, the, the few, the brave, the proud, Uh, sort of a call to special forces there. Um, But those illustrations never really helped me. Yeah, Jim Elliot died on the mission field. Yes, Elizabeth Elliot was his wife, and she wrote a really great book, and she is a noted speaker and Christian. And Yeah, but I'm just me. I'm just, I'm in my boring Dull skin every day. I wake up and my breath smells and I, my hair's a mess and ah, I'm no Jim Elliot. And so, as inspirational as these stories about missionaries were, it didn't really work to bear fruit in my life. In fact, it had the opposite effect. It sent me further away because if I can't go all the way, you know, I just I might as well. And so that was part of my reaction. And so when I went in, when I started ministry. Uh, Back in 1997, a couple of years into ministry, there are two promises I made to myself. And I don't always keep it, but uh, for the most part. One is, I will speak from my life as much as possible. Because I want the people that I'm preaching to, to be able to feel a dissonance between the gospel that I preach and the normal, boring person that I actually am so that the gospel can be made real. I want my hearers to not just be inspired, but be like, wow, if Peter can do that. If Peter can study the Bible, so can I. If Peter can stand behind the pulpit, I guess anybody else can. And so I made that commitment to myself. Sometimes it's tricky because it's easy to talk too much about myself, and I've had to learn over the years. But it's my firm conviction, a ministry philosophy, that the gospel I preach is bigger than myself, but it's important that it come through me. Now, there's lots, there are lots of great preachers out there. There's lots of people who will preach on this very same passage, much better than I can. And the question that I have to ask is, why not just hit play on one of those guys today, right now? Because of the theology of incarnation. You know what incarnation means? You hear the word carnal in there? It means that God, when he wanted to love us, he didn't just give us words. He didn't just give us truths. He didn't just give us a uh, set of systematic theology books. But he came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And he, being fully God, became fully man. And he lived a full human life, tempted in every which way that I am. So that he can identify with me and I with him. And then he took on my sins and died the death I should have died after he lived the life I should have lived. 
reason he was nailed to a cross and God raised him from the dead to validate God's own love that was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this idea that we are together here in the flesh, hearing from this very fallen human being, that's very important to what ministry is. When God wanted to minister to the world, He didn't just send a link. He sent a person. And so I, as a person, believe in the presence and the reality, the three-dimensionality, the messiness, the chaotic nature of the local church. Why should we gather like this? Why rub shoulders with your neighbors the way we are doing now? Because this is us being the true self. This is us being incarnate. This is, this is us growing into our whole selves so that we can give of our whole selves. If you've wondered how you can be a better Christian to your neighbors and to your co-workers and your family members who may not know Jesus Christ in the flesh the way you claim to, the best way is through your skin, is through your flesh, your true self. Second is true love. Give preference to one another. Uh, this word preference, another gr- great Greek word, it might be translated as the word uh, presence. And we've talked about this before, so I'm going to just go quickly through it. Presence, to be present with somebody means that there's a kind of self-denial happening. You're denying your own needs, hopes, wants, and desires and preferring to be attentive to the hopes, desires, wants, uh, and needs of the other. So when you are with, when I'm with my kids, for example, I'm saying no to this game, 2048, I want to play on my phone, or the game threes, I want to play on my phone. You know, it's, it's like, I can't act on that. I have to conceal, not, don't feel on that piece. Because I'm being, that's to all my frozen fans out there. <clears throat> if you don't get that, you're old. But I have to deny myself and I have to be attentive to this little creature in front of me. And that's what it means for me to be present as a friend and as a dad and as a husband. Presence requires self-denial. It means that I'm not seeking attention. I'm not desiring attention. I'm not needing attention. But I'm giving attention. I'm being attentive. And so the flip side of that is, if you are not your true self, if you are your false self, then I submit to you that one of the ways you know you are being a false self is that you love attention. You crave attention. You seek attention because you need attention. Because at the core of a false self, you are crying out for help. You're not at peace with yourself. You're at unrest. There's a self-consciousness about you. One of the best tests for this that I know of is to ask the question, how's your elbow this morning? Oh, you don't know? Well, that's because your elbow's fine. Your elbow is being its true self. It's doing its job. It's not drawing attention to itself. It's not crying out for help because it's not injured. 
There's nothing that's rubbing the wrong way. There's nothing that's being pinched the wrong way. It's just doing its job, completely unselfconscious, serving its masters, being present to the moment. But what if the elbow wasn't? What if you did know how your elbow was doing? What does that mean? It means that your elbow needs some attention. It's not so well. So if you find yourself being a false self rather than a true self, then verse 9 and 19 are significant for you. Verse 9 uses the word love. Verse 19 uses the word beloved. Both cases, the Greek word is the word agape. The three kinds of love in the Greek language. Agape is the strongest of the three, and it means unconditional love. Love that is undeserved, unmerited. Love that is not dependent on the worthiness of the object, but on the loveliness of the subject doing the loving. And Paul here is saying, only, and this is, this is the Christian message here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the part you want to hear. The claim of the Scriptures... And what Paul is saying here is that only those who are agaped, unconditionally loved, verse 19 is agapetos, the beloved, the unconditionally beloved of God, have the mechanisms in order, have the resources within to be able to give of self because the self is whole because you can't give what you don't have. You are made, the scriptures say, for the love of God. And when you are loved with this unconditional love that's only found in God's Son, then and only then are you able to be your true self able to be present to others around you and give of your whole self in a way that is not seeking attention, in a way that is not crying out for help, in a way that is not self-conscious. In any moment, you are able, because of the love of God, you are able to not be defined by your own needs or your own fears or the other's anxieties. But you can be the true self, given over to the true good. That is, you can love your neighbor. And now my, my best example of this that I have in my life is my mom and my mom's kids. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The best example of this is my mom and my kid's mom. Ah, there we go. And here is why. Because compared to my love, and I think in general dad's love, there is far less ego. There's far less self in a mother's love. I think about my love, and I love my kids. But it's, I want to bring them into what I want to do. I have this career, and I have this job, and I... I, I, it's always I, but mom is asking you, what are you doing? Are you hungry? Do you need to eat? What... And there is a kind of self-denial and an attentiveness and a presence to us. That's me and the kids. That I experience in my mom and my kids' mom. 
that I just don't experience, I don't think they experience in me as much. And so I love that and I honor that. And over the years, I've come to deeply, deeply respect and appreciate that in a way that I would give my life for. But even their love falls short compared to the love that they remind me of. The ultimate act of presence, the ultimate act of true love, of course, was carried out by Jesus Christ. We're going to be doing baptisms today. And the baptism that Jesus underwent is unlike any other baptism that preceded him and uh, came after him. Because Jesus was not a sinner, and yet he took on our sin, and he was baptized. That is, the sins that we committed were put to death in his body. And then God affirmed this act by raising him up first out of the water and then from the grave. And so the baptism for us is not our own baptism, but we are receiving his baptism because his baptism was the one and only one that was effective, that he was able to eradicate our sins. And so the baptism we do is an act of imitation of the true and one effective baptism. And the baptism that Jesus did was a precursor, a symbol, a sign pointing to the cross, which was his literal death. 